Do you remember what you were doing 39 Thursdays ago? Do you remember what you were doing 39 Thursdays ago? Probably not. If I don't give you the date, you probably definitely don't know what you were doing. It was June 23rd. I looked back and I found that I had meeting three different meetings on that day, and one was at a Barnes & Noble, which I haven't been, well, I was back at one other time. I didn't even really know they existed again until 39 Thursdays ago. But that's all I remember about that Thursday. Today, we're going to see something that's far from forgettable. We're going to see the most memorable Thursday in the history of Thursdays. We're going to go back to the most important, unforgettable Thursday of all time. There are forgettable Thursdays, like whatever happened 39 Thursdays ago, and there's one unforgettable Thursday, and that's recorded in Luke chapter 22. This, Luke shows us in Luke chapter 22, is that Thursday the last Thursday of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ on earth before his crucifixion. So starting today, this week, next week, the week after, and Easter, we're going to follow the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Starting today, we're going to follow him on Thursday. Next week, we'll go around with him on Friday. Then we'll follow him, his body actually, on Saturday. And then on Easter, we'll see what happens. Human history pivots on these four days. The Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of Passion Week, human history pivots on those days. These are, without a doubt, the four most important days in all of human history. Without the events of these four days, there would be not we would be not just without hope, but beyond all hope. The center of the action on this Thursday is always on Jesus the Nazarene. And Luke gives us an eyewitness reporting of what happened on those two most on this most important Thursday of Thursdays. We're going to see as we go through Luke chapter 22. It's long. We're not going to read every verse, but it's long. We're going to see that there is a plan, two plans. There's two strategies: a plan of destruction and a plan of salvation. We're going to see that the plan of destruction and the plan of salvation are intertwined together. And they both unfold simultaneously. And this is what this Thursday is all about. The intertwining of the plan of destruction and the plan of salvation. So we're going to follow Jesus and note when the plan of destruction is happening. And note also when the plan of salvation is, is happening and watch them unfold. Because Luke, like a master storyteller, knows how to weave a story together. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll begin in verse 1. Lord, as we consider your word, I pray that you would be amongst us by your spirit and power. We don't want to learn only. We want to be changed. So Holy Spirit, I pray that as we read your word, you would impact hearts in this room. I pray for any here who are Christians, I pray that we would walk away encouraged. I pray for any here who are not Christians, I pray that they would walk away discouraged so that they might put their faith in you and therefore be encouraged. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. 
Luke 22, the plan of destruction takes the lead. Verse 1. Now, Luke tells us, the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, that's Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. So Luke is writing to largely a Gentile audience who have no, no idea what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, much less the Passover. They had no idea that the Passover kicked off one week of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The Passover was generally, depending on the year, at the end of March or the beginning of April every year. And this is the Passover. This, is, this Passover is one of the so-called pilgrimage fi- festivals. Every year, every Jewish person at this time would travel to Jerusalem for a week, three times a year, to celebrate three different festivals. This one, they would come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and the population of Jerusalem would swell to many times its normal size. Now, the chief priests and the scribes are introduced. These are the chief priests and the scribes of the nation of Israel. This is the Jewish ruling elite. They, Luke tells us, what do they want to do? They want to put Jesus to death. Now, ever the political animals, they knew they could not put Jesus to death out in the open because that's bad politics. Why? Because the people liked him. They did not want to execute Jesus or arrest Jesus in front of crowds because most of the crowds were, at this point, quote, with Jesus. In fact, the pilgrims that came from the north of Israel, where Jesus was from, liked him a whole lot more than everybody else. Jesus' people had had just come into Jerusalem and taken it over. And Jesus, each week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday... He's teaching in the temple. And the authorities didn't come up and try to arrest him because they knew that would incite a riot. And they were afraid of the people. So, they have a desire to kill Jesus, but no plan. Well, now the plan of destruction takes another step. Verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him, that's Jesus, to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So, the plan of destruction, this is more sinister than just a betrayal. We see Satan and his name, we know him as the devil or Beelzebub, that means accuser. Satan is active. The devil enters Judas, one of Jesus' most intimate friends, and he goes to the Jewish elite, the Jewish, Jewish ruling authorities, and offers to turn Jesus into them. Luke does not tell us how Satan enters Judas, just that he did. What's clear is Judas is not innocent, It's as if Judas is going on wanting to please the Lord and then Satan comes in and bam, he's taken over. No, in some way that Luke does not describe, Judas 
was cooperative, and therefore Satan entered him. So Judas goes to the Jewish party and negotiates a price for Jesus. I'll hand him over to you if you hand over to me money. And I'll hand him over to you under the cover of darkness in a quiet place that I know and you don't so that you can arrest him with no one around away from the prying eyes of the crowd. And the authorities are thrilled. So the plan of destruction, it's going, it's rolling. But Jesus is not a mere ignorant pawn in Thursdays, in this Thursday's events. He's working a plan of salvation. So there's the plan of destruction, like I said. There's also a plan of salvation. And the plan of salvation begins being laid out in verse 7. And it's a very Jewish plan of salvation. It's during the Passover meal. Now, if you know anything about Judaism or the Old Testament, you know the Passover was the meal that celebrated God's salvation of Israel from slavery to Egypt. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. We call that Thursday. Thursday during the day was the day that the Passover lamb had to be killed. So the lamb, somebody, your household, whoever was the head of the household or responsible for the meal, would get a lamb without any kind of physical blemish. The Old Testament says without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. The best lamb, the lamb you would want to keep as a pet, you take that lamb to the priest and the priest kills it, drains its blood, you take it home, skin it, and cook it to eat. All of the lambs that were to be eaten during the Passover meal were killed ritually in this way. One scholar counted well over 200,000 lambs that day. So if you, were to go to the, the, if you were to go to the temple, you would see blood, blood everywhere. The plan of salvation continues. Notice how in control Jesus is. You get a lot of details and you think, why is Luke telling us this stuff? Because he wants to show us Jesus is in control. He's not a victim here. Verse 8. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room that I might eat Passover with my disciples? And he will show you, a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So Jesus, he's in control of the smallest little details, right? You follow a guy with a Nalgene water bottle. He's going to show you where to go. And then go to the guy who owns the house and say, where do we fix our meal? Oh, it's upstairs with the Viking stove. That's how this all is going down, right? So Jesus finds a place and directs his people there. The Passover meal is celebrated amongst the nation of Israel. And Deuteronomy 16 tells us it has to be in Jerusalem. And this meal is highly choreographed. You're not free to freelance in this meal. The meal recounts and rehearses the Jewish salvation from Egyptian slavery. 
Generally, in this meal, not generally, every time, the youngest son would ask of the father, what is tonight, why is tonight different than all other nights? And the father would retell the Exodus story, the escape from Egypt by Israel, from Deuteronomy 26, verse 5 and 11. So the youngest son would say something like, why is tonight different than all other nights? We don't know who asked that question in this meal, but surely they would have said something like this, and the Egyptians treated us harshly, Deuteronomy 26, and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into the place, and into this place, that's why it's in Jerusalem, and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So they remember and they rehearse and they recall this story. There were also four different glasses of wine that they would drink from, each symbolizing something different about the Exodus. Now, Luke does not record all of these moving parts, partly because everyone who had ever been to a Passover knew these movements by heart. He, instead, he focuses on the place and the part where Jesus breaks centuries of tradition. He breaks centuries of tradition to show that the Passover meal was pointing not just back to the nation of Israel and their release, but to him. Either he's right or he's a megalomaniac, right? Like how odd would that be if you're sitting there? If you're a disciple, you're 32, 3, 4, you've been to a bunch of Passover meals, and you know how it goes. And here, this guy says, essentially, this describes then but now and me. That would make the room grow silent. But it's how the plan of salvation begins to come into focus. And here's what Jesus says, verse 14. And when the hour came, he, being Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Guys, this is my last Passover, he says. Notice a couple things. First, he's planning on suffering. So the plan of destruction and the plan of salvation both involve the suffering of Jesus. The plan of destruction is that Jesus would suffer and die and be gone forever, the plan of salvation was also that Jesus would suffer and die. But we'll have to wait and see what happens here in a minute. Will he be gone forever? No, actually, he says that one day he will celebrate with them the Passover again in glory with all the people in his kingdom. So then... Verse 19, 
and he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Now, the bread and the wine here do not become the literal body and blood of Jesus. Both, instead, are a picture of the self-sacrificial nature of his suffering. His body would be broken as the bread was broken. His blood would be spilled as the wine is seen to be read and swallowed down. All for the purpose of covering the sins of his followers. He even uses language that we should take note of. He says this, This cup is, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. He is inaugurating here, his death and resurrection will, will inaugurate it finally, as he's inaugurating a new covenant that will take place of the old covenant. Covenant means agreement. Talk more about this in a minute. But here's a direct quotation of what the prophet Jeremiah says about this new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, he says, this is centuries before Jesus, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. How? Well, the new covenant of his blood. That's how. This was the plan of salvation. The old covenant was an agreement God had with the people of Israel. They broke it. They broke it. If you question whether or not they broke it, read the Old Testament. They broke it, big time, all the time, everywhere, in all kinds of places. That covenant was broken. Jesus came in part to inaugurate a new agreement, a new covenant. And this is the beginning of the plan of salvation. The new covenant would take the place of the old covenant that God made with Israel. And this new covenant would be fulfilled by Jesus and offered to all, not just Israel. Also, those who followed Jesus would become new kinds of people. The Holy Spirit, whom Jesus sends when he ascends to heaven, he sends and, and, bring, and sends upon his people so that the Spirit might take up residence in them. Meaning that part of the new covenant is anybody who trusts in Jesus today has a new internal desire to please the Lord that was not there previously and was not put there by them. And Jesus inaugurates this new plan of salvation, this new covenant, by having his body broken, as symbolized in the bread, and his blood spilled, as symbolized in the wine. That's the plan of salvation. But the plan of destruction is still moving forward. Verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. 
meaning one of you are going to betray me. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So we're so used to thinking, oh, well, of course it's Judas. We know that. Why? Because we've read the Bible multiple different times. These guys did not know because Judas seemed to be just like them. They had no idea. Jesus knew. And as they start to think, who is it going to be? The conversation naturally led to, well, verse 24. If you think about a group of guys, where is this going to go? Verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. We go from, one of you is going to betray me, to, who's the greatest? Now, not me. I'm not going to betray him. You know what? I'm pretty darn good. I'm better. I'm better. Now we're arguing about who's the greatest. So you can see these disciples, they needed help. And if we were there, we would be right along with them, arguing that, no, I'm the greatest. The twelve were in trouble. And Judas, he was the one who would betray Jesus. We know Satan had already entered Judas. Now we see that Satan makes another appearance. Verse 31. He's Simon, Simon. This is Peter. His name is Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, I would never want to hear this from the Lord, but behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And I love Peter's response. He doesn't say, whoa, Satan himself? The prince of darkness, Grim? Old Scratch? He's coming for me? Lucifer, the one in whom saw you in your glory and wanted to take your place and be like you and fell? The one who tempted Adam and Eve, he is coming for me? I should be careful. No, that's not what he says. He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. dun da 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 You can just see Peter standing there like this. It's super easy to be brave around the table with friends. But when the soldiers come, it's a different thing. Jesus sets him straight in verse 34. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you, have, you deny me three times. Deny three times that you know me. It's fascinating on so many levels. Here's the plan of darkness, destruction. Satan demands Peter. Note that he can't just take him. And our Lord, how does he help? He prays for Peter. This is the gospel in miniature here. His ministry for us today is still the one of intercession. He prays to the Father on behalf of Peter, and he prays to the Father on behalf of all of us as Christians as well. Peter is confident that he's ready to go all the way up to death with Jesus. Jesus has a more sobering words for Peter, informing him that not only would he, he would deny even knowing him in just a few hours. Peter would fail, but as for those, and we fail, but for those in Jesus, failure is never permanent. Plan of destruction is marching forward. Now we go back to the plan of salvation in verse 39. 
And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. And when he came to the place and said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. We can see that this is not a normal kind of prayer. The normal posture for a Jewish person in prayer is standing, not kneeling. He is kneeling and praying because he feels the burden of what is about to happen. And we see in this snapshot here, Luke recording Jesus' prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is a summary of what he prayed. Not just the, it wasn't as if it was only these exact words. This is a summary. We see Jesus honestly telling the Father, I don't want to do this. Is there any way that this can be taken from me? He's about to experience more than just death. He's not requesting so much not to die. He's asking if there's a way in which he might not have to die in the place of sinners. He's about to experience not just death, but the horror of death for the sins of all his people. He's about to experience punishment. He's about to experience wrath for sins he did not commit. He's about to be be treated as personally responsible for every single sin you and I have ever committed or will ever commit. This is why he's honest with the Lord. His father saying, if you are willing, please remove this cup from me. Jesus is not a robot. He's a man. It's not as if he was programmed to go through this and just walks through it like there's no problem. He feels the weight of this plan of salvation. The plan was always that he would die in the place of sinners. He's asking, is there any other way for these sinners to be forgiven? Even though he knew the plan and planned the plan. He's God the Son. But Jesus is also a man. He didn't relish the idea of carrying our sin to his death. But he is willing to do it. Yet not my will but your will be done. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And an angel comes and ministers to him. But we see here that the plan of salvation requires suffering. It requires that the son suffers. And he begins to suffer in prayer. Verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. When I'm in agony, I don't always pray more earnestly. I complain more earnestly. I question things more earnestly. Not him. Notice what our Lord does. He prayed more earnestly. And his sweat 
became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That's earnest prayer. He's suffering right there in the garden. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus is utterly dependent on the Father. And dependence is always difficult, no matter who you are. But it's especially difficult if you are going to be the sin bearer for all the people of God for all time. James Edwards says, the most intense description of Jesus' suffering in the Gospels occurs not at Golgotha on the cross, but at Gethsemane in the garden in his decision to submit to the Father's redemptive will. And it's there in the garden we see the plan of salvation involves destruction for him. But there's another plan of destruction working, and here we see it again in action in verse 47. While he was still speaking, that's to his disciples, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. <clears throat> Not exactly a kill shot. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour, and it is the power of darkness. And they seized him and led him, led him away, bringing him into the priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. Judas, here's the plan of destruction by the evil one, and Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, chaos reigns, Peter cuts off somebody's ears, Jesus says stop stop fighting. Then other accounts in the gospel says everyone runs away. Jesus is now in the possession of his enemies. And they take him to the home of Annas, the high priest, for an inquiry. The power of darkness, the plan of darkness, the plan of destruction seems to be holding its, sway, holding its way, having its way. Peter follows, and we read this in verse 55. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. These are just people in the crowd, right? People who are out in the courtyard of the high priest. It gets cold at night there in the spring, just like here. Then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said, this man also was with them. And he denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. 
And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And this has to be one of the most pathos-filled verses in Luke. Verse 61, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Imagine what that eye contact held. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he, being Peter, went out and wept bitterly. That look, what it held. Peter, who said, I will follow you to prison and to death, cannot even follow him to the fire pit where a little girl confronts him. The plan of darkness, the plan of destruction is pressing forward and winning. And then it gets worse. Verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They blindfolded him and kept asking, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. How ironic. They mock him as a prophet. They mock him as a prophet who they think has no idea what's going on, and yet he is in complete control. Jesus said he would suffer. He already was. Jesus said he would be betrayed. He was. Jesus said Peter would deny him three times. He did. And now the soldiers act like he doesn't know what he's doing. Oh, but he does. The plan of destruction and the plan of salvation are intertwined. So ends Thursday. The Thursday of Thursdays. So what have we learned from Thursday in Luke chapter 22? Two things at least. First, the plan of salvation is a plan of destruction. The plan of salvation is a plan of destruction. It seems that way because it is. If you're in church, if you've been in church for any amount of years, you can fit, forget how strange it is that we take for granted that God the Son, the incarnate Son of God, died on a cross. He didn't just appear to die, He really died. And He allowed Himself to die. But His crucifixion is the place that a new reality was born with the death of Christ. Jesus exhibits His strength through weakness. Though He is in complete control of all the events, Though he had complete power, yet he allowed himself to be arrested, tried, mocked, and executed. Why? Because his death would bring about a great change for humanity. When we read earlier of the Last Supper, we, taught, we heard about how Jesus was inaugurating a new covenant. And in Luke's telling of the story, he does not mention a lamb. Did you notice that? Nowhere in the story do we have a mention of the Lamb. Why? Because Luke wants his readers not to focus their attention on the Passover Lamb, but on the Lamb of God. 
that one at the table. It's not what they were eating that was important. It was the one who would take their place. This was the inauguration of the new covenant. Under the old covenant, Moses sprinkled the people with blood. We read about it in Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came to the people, came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord we has, the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Why does he put blood on the people? He's saying that if you break your word, your blood will be spilt. And what did they do? They broke their word. And the covenant was broken. They did not do as the Lord directed them. They did not do as they promised. They were not obedient. They did not follow the, lo- the, the, the Lord. So their blood was required. And you know what? Even though most of us in this room are not Jewish, we are not any different. Paul says that all we, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we have not been obedient to God. And our blood is required as well. This is where Jesus steps forth with the message of salvation in the midst of destruction. The new covenant is new, not because there are different rules. They're the same rules. Or because it doesn't have any commandments. It does have commandments. The standard is still perfect obedience to the statutes and precepts of the Lord. But what makes this covenant new? That Jesus obeyed the statutes. For you. Jesus has obeyed all the statutes and the precepts of the Lord perfectly, yet he was killed as a substitute. Our blood was required because we have wandered. All we like sheep have gone away. We've, We've wandered astray. We've gone our own way. The Lord placed on him the iniquity of us all. The plan of salvation was a plan of destruction, but not for us, for him. Sin plagued mankind and has always plagued mankind. And we have been perpetually separate from God held hostage by the power of sin and the sentence of death. But that is true of us no longer. Why? Because Jesus has inaugurated a new covenant. The old covenant was broken when the people disobeyed. But the new covenant is different. Why? Because it can't be broken. How would it be broken? Only if Jesus disobeyed. Now, can you imagine Jesus disobeying? 
No. He has never been disobedient in thought, in word, or in deed. The new covenant inaugurated in His blood ensures that though we all break the agreement, though we break the covenant, we can come to Him, ask for forgiveness, knowing that He, and He alone, has fulfilled the requirements. He obeyed for us. He obeyed when we could not. He obeyed when we would not. He always completely obeyed, yet He was murdered. Not us for our sins. I've said this many times, but the most common way the New Testament refers to Christians is not as Christians or Christ followers or disciples, but as those who are in Christ. Those two words, in Christ, hold more hope and meaning than I could ever explain, much less describe, in a thousand lifetimes. But here's one thing it means. For those who believe in Jesus, who are in Christ, Christ kept the rules of the agreement. Christ kept the new covenant for you, for me, for all of us. So that when we disobey, and we do disobey, in thought, word, and deed, the covenant is not broken. God doesn't shout from heaven, disqualify. No. For those of us who are in Christ, we know the plan of salvation goes through destruction, and it's the destruction of the Son that gives us hope that we might not be destroyed. That's why this Thursday matters, and that's why this Thursday is the Thursday of all Thursdays. This is true. The plan of, of salvation is the plan of destruction. If you're a Christian, you read Luke 22, and you see what Jesus went through? He did it for you. It's very personal. One other thought as we close. Everyone rejects Jesus in this picture. The religious people, the disciples, Judas, Peter. Eventually we're going to see even the Father rejects Jesus. No one stands by Him. He experiences complete and utter rejection. This is real rejection. He was completely rejected because he was treated as if personally responsible for my sin and your sin and all of our sin. He experienced rejection. And here's an idea that is hopeful for us as Christians. Jesus experienced true rejection so that we might only, from time to time, feel rejected. We cannot be rejected by God the Father because we are in Christ. Will we feel from time to time that we are rejected? We're going to feel that way, but it's not true. How do I know? Well, I look back to the garden and I see my Lord sweating blood saying, I'm going to pray. I'm in agony and I'm going to pray more earnestly 
Is there any other way to get this done? Is there any other way forward besides this? Anything but this? Caring sin I didn't commit. For people who right now don't care about me. There's no other way. And he followed the Father's will. See, Jesus experienced true rejection so that we might be free just to experience the feeling of rejection. Have you ever thought, nobody understands what I'm going through? No one cares. Maybe you just feel utterly alone. I'm not denying those feelings. And maybe there is no other person on the planet who understands, but there is one. There is one who walked this planet and isn't here now, but he's coming back. He understands. He cares. He was really alone, so that we might only feel alone from time to time. We will go through a great many troubles, and there are going to be times where we're going to wonder if we're going to be able to just make it through the next few minutes, much less the next few hours, days, weeks. And we're going to wonder, does God care? Has He rejected me? The answer is no. How do we know? Because when the, when the son said, is there any other way to do this? The answer was no. The son rejected the father, so he will never reject you, Christian. But also, remember, what is true of Jesus is true for us. Salvation and destruction go hand in hand. The stories are intertwined. You will have troubles, but those troubles will not ultimately destroy you. Why? Because Jesus was destroyed. It's going to feel like destruction, but that's not what it is. Not for us as believers. So what troubles are you carrying today? Have you lost a job? Are you experiencing crippling, crippling discouragement? Maybe you lost a relationship. Maybe you just have pervasive disappointment with your life. Maybe you are indifferent and you're failing the trial of prosperity. Maybe you're suffering through the indignity of old age or just the indignity of young age, being a teenager. Or maybe you're a parent of teenagers. There are all kinds of troubles to go around. And there's going to be more where that came from. These and many more troubles accompany us wherever we go. But because God abandoned Jesus, He will not, He cannot abandon you. The covenant cannot be broken. You will be saved through these troubles. Because Jesus was killed He brought our trouble upon him. No one else would do that. This is a Thursday like no other. The plan of salvation is destruction. 
our Savior's destruction for us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that this is not, as we read in Luke chapter 22, just theoretical things that we have on our page. What we have is love in action, substitution for us. Lord, we go through a great many things, but we will not go through what you went through, Jesus. We will not have to carry the weight of anyone else's sin, and we will not, as Christians, even have to carry the weight of our own sin. Though we deserve to, you stepped forward and took our place. We are grateful, but not as grateful as we should be. Thank you that you willingly were destroyed so that we might be saved. Thank you. I pray for any in this room carrying trials and troubles in with them as they walked in, as burdens. These are heavy things, and I don't want to minimize those. But Lord, I pray that you would... Help them to know that you are with them in their trials and troubles and hardships. And that you will not, more than you, more than you won't just will not abandon them, you cannot abandon them. Because if you abandon them, you break the covenant, and that covenant cannot be broken. That agreement cannot be thwarted. Jesus, thank you for being with us always, even to the end of the age. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.